Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. And, and what I want to do is talk about how oftentimes our imposter stream is caused because we are trying to be God in many ways. And I want us to show us this video. It's, uh, it's not actually from a Christian perspective. It's a neuroscientist talking about the cure or the solution for imposter syndrome. And it's the, you'll notice the, the cure or the rationale or the solution that she gives is a little bit different than what we might expect it to be. And so let's just watch this video together. Wow, all right. So the cure for imposter syndrome is Life Group. All right, so sign up for Life Group if you haven't already. Did you catch that? The, 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 the solution for imposter, imposter syndrome is a sense of belonging. And, and some of the phrases were, you know, f- hang out with your friends, spend time with people, have meaningful social connection. But did you catch the very last phrase that she said? There's a basic need to be part of something bigger than yourself. In scientific terms, what does that mean? A bigger, like, uh, community or social movement? But when we really think and we pull out, what is the biggest thing that we're part of? We're part of the greater universe. We're, we're part of God's kingdom. And God is the biggest thing in all of creation. And science tells us that the reason why we feel imposter syndrome is because what? We've isolated ourselves. We pulled away. We've considered ourselves to be the biggest and most important thing instead of who God is. But as that is the very thing against God's plan for creation. When he created man and woman, when he created people, he created us for connection. He created us for relationship, not only with each other, but with him. And it's when we isolate ourselves, we make ourselves the biggest thing, that causes problems. And that's what we want to talk about, is that the core of the problem is when we try to be God. When the godless are trying to be God. And that's why I want to give us the one thing for this morning, is that the greatest scandal as a limited creature is trying to replace the limitless creator. That is the greatest scandal. That is the biggest problem in humanity that we have. And that is what Paul is going to talk about in these next few verses. So hopefully you've turned to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 uh, to 32, and we'll read the first couple verses. And the question I want us to answer today is, how are we trying to replace the creator? And what are we going to do about it? Because many of us are like, yeah, I'm not trying to be God. I'm just trying to live my own life. But the first thing we have to know is that we all put up a facade. And that's the first point, is that there's a facade of idolatry. There's a facade of idolatry in every single one of us. A facade, a front, an appearance of something that's not really what it seems to be, but it's there. Hopefully you've gotten turned to there. We're going to read the first couple of verses, verses 18 to 23. This is what it says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We'll just pause there. Remember last week, Paul had just finished talking about the power of God of salvation to all who, who believe. And so now as he talks about wrath and sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness, our, our first inclination oftentimes is to think, about, oh my gosh, what does this talk about sin? And, and our, our minds oftentimes, especially if we've grown in the church, we think about, oh, what did I do wrong? Or, or what was it that I was supposed to do that I shouldn't, or what was it that I was supposed to do that I didn't do, that I should have done, and therefore I sinned and I need to ask for forgiveness from Jesus and get my sins forgiven and feel better again and now be able to live my life. But we don't have, find any of that here. We don't find a set of moral rights or wrongs, do's or don'ts. Paul doesn't say God has come upon all those of you who have not done soap this past week. He doesn't say those of you who missed life group this past week, God's wrath is coming upon you. 
He doesn't say, oh, because uh, you didn't pray before you came to church today, God's wrath. If you didn't give, God's wrath come. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. It's not a list of do's or don'ts. What does Paul say is the root cause of God's wrath being revealed? It's far more fundamental than a moralistic list of things you ought to do or you ought not to do. It's an understanding of truth. It's an understanding of truth. What do we see in these verses? First thing we see is that God's wrath is revealed when humans don't acknowledge the truth. This is the fundamental issue of sin, is that we do not accept reality. Verse 18b, just read it again. It says, who suppresses the truth by their unrighteousness, or other translations, by their wickedness. In the ERV, it says, hide the truth. That phrase, uh, phrase, suppress the truth, is hide the truth. We're hiding something, covering something up. In the Amplified, it says, stifle the truth. So there's some kind of effort on our part to, to sweep things under the rug to cover things up, to not believe what is actually real, what is reality. And many of us, we know what this is like, and you hate it when there's people in authority who are constantly covering up the truth. I don't, again, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us, you've heard about what's going on with Facebook recently and their, their supposed cover-up of the research that they did about how toxic Instagram is for teens? And many of us are probably like, that's so bad. Shame on Mark Zuckerberg. Shame on Mark Zuckerberg. Or you know other people or governments or authorities in power that are manipulating, destroying, covering up, or trying to rewrite the truth. And there's a sense of injustice that we feel. There's a sense of indignation, the sense of, like, that is wrong and that must be punished. How much more, if we feel that, would God desire to punish any covering up of the truth? How much more of God of the universe, if we feel that, how much more should God feel that and pour out his wrath upon that kind of sin? And, and some of us were like, yeah, but I'm not Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I wish I could be, right? Just, you know, own like billions of dollars in assets and rule the biggest country in the whole world, right? Facebook. <laughs> but many of us are like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't distort, the, I don't hide the truth. How, how's that? Okay, don't raise your hand. How many of us, you know, exercise and healthy eating are good for you? How many of us, we do it consistently? You suppress the truth. <laughs> it's true. How many of us, you know that reading Bible and praying on a daily basis is important? But how many of us, we do it every day? Just because we gave the budget update, might as well throw it in. How many of us, we know giving is biblical? Oof. But how many of us, we do that? There are so many areas in our lives. We, we know what is true, but we do not submit to it. We suppress it. We block it out of our minds because we prefer something else. The question is, do you allow the truth of God to work in your life? Or is something else... A lie, something else you believe is the main thing that is driving the decisions, the habits, the behaviors, the lifestyle that you choose. And we just kind of gave some of those as examples, but what is the ultimate truth that Paul is talking about that is being suppressed? We haven't even got there yet. In verses 19 to 21, Paul states that the truth is being, that is being suppressed is that God is God. That is the main truth that Paul says is being suppressed we notice in verse 21a it says they neither glorified him as god nor gave thanks to him and and what do we see we see that the truth of god is what his eternal power his divine nature notice paul doesn't say anything about like god is jesus god had died on the cross god you know did all these things. he didn't even go into that he didn't say god was jesus as a jewish man who did all these things or that you know, the Christian theology, the doctrines, all that kind of thing. He doesn't say that. He says simply that he's eternal, he's powerful, and he's divine. That means he's timeless, he's powerful, and he's beyond the material world. When, when you look at creation, what do you see? Do we see ourselves as the biggest and most significant thing in the world, in the universe? Or do we see God as the most significant thing in the world? 
I don't know if any of you are physicists or scientists. You talk to some of these high, you know, of course, there are a lot of uh, theoretical physicists that are atheists, but you talk to some of these that are Christian. Go do some Google research on that. You'll, you'll realize that theory after theory, you had the Big Bang, you now you have string theory, now you have all these multidimensional stuff. The more theories they come up with, the more they realize, what well, we don't know much about the world. Any of you who are uh, medical professionals here, study the human body, how many of you in the medical profession, you realize the more you study the body, the less you realize you know you're confident about what the body is doing? <laughs> and I was talking to a doctor the other day, and they were like, we're just kind of like just doing random stuff and hoping it works. I'm like, wow, that gives me a lot of confidence. <laughs> that gives me a lot of confidence. It's almost like the more we know, the more we realize what we don't know. And, and how is it that possible that when we look at creation, we look at not only, I mean, yes, part of creation is nature, but when we look at the holistic nature of all creation, how is it possible that we come to the conclusion that we are the most significant things in this whole universe? But that's the problem is we do it every single day. We do it every single day. From the day, from the moment that we wake up, our minds, our thoughts are on what? Ourselves. To the moment we go to sleep, our minds and our thoughts are on ourselves. And so even without thinking, whether you claim yourself as a Christian, you grew up in church your whole life, you're not even a believer yet, but you're seeking, our focus is not on the God of creator. We deny him even though it's plain that there's something so much bigger, so much greater than us out there, but yet we make ourselves the biggest thing. And that is the facade of idolatry. That is, the, that is the, the impression, that is the illusion that we oftentimes convince ourselves of. And that's why idolatry is when creation takes the place of the creator. Verses 22b to 23a, it says, they claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That word exchange in the ERV, it means traded. For us, if we claim and hopefully us, by now, we're starting to realize, like, hey, maybe I, I, I think I'm bigger than I, I actually am. But for us to think that God is not the greatest thing in the world, then something else has to take that place. And so what Paul is saying is they exchanged the glory of God, which is supposed to be the greatest thing, for something else much smaller. And what is it that we exchanged? What is it that we traded? We, we said, I don't want this anymore. I don't want God's glory. I don't want... God to be the biggest and the most rightful thing in my life anymore. I want something else. And what is it that we traded it for? It was for an image. And notice he talks about birds and reptiles and other stuff. I don't know if any of us, we worship the reptile God. or. But the first thing that he says is the image of what? Mortal man. The biggest thing in our lives is ourselves. The biggest thing in our lives is ourselves. And when we say we all idolize something, the biggest things we idolize is ourself. And I, I want to speak to all of us here. Again, regardless of what your background is, regardless of whether you consider yourself religious or not, we all worship something. We all idolize something. The thing that you give most glory to, the thing that you give the most importance to in your life is the thing that you idolize, the thing that you worship. And this is not even a religious statement. This is a, a, a life statement. There's, a, there's an author, his name is David Foster Wallace. He's uh, a writer, an author. Uh, he has a checkered history with religion. He actually uh, never really fully, it's not very clear. He's not like one of these, you know, oftentimes we quote these theologians, we talk about like Augustine and Jonathan Edwards. You're like, whoa, these guys are too holy. And man, their quotes are so deep, but I could never be like them. This is just a, a regular guy he got kicked out by the Catholic Church, right? He had his checkered past with religion, and, uh, you know, he, he actually made somewhat of a name for himself through his writing, but he ended up uh, committing suicide in 2008, and so he struggled a lot. He's just a normal, average human being. This is what he writes, and this is a, a part of a commencement address that he gave at, at, a, at a university. He says this. He says, because here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Any atheists out there? There's no such thing as worship, not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, or YHWH, Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. I think this is the, this is the most condemning part of this whole quote. It's not even written by someone who's one of these great theologians. It's just by an average person. But the truth is that he says it very clearly. We don't believe this truth. We don't see ourselves as worshiping other things. We have this facade. We have this illusion that we're actually worshiping the right God. We're doing ourselves. We're doing the right things. But all in all, the whole time, we're worshiping some of these other things. If we're honest with ourselves, there's something more important, bigger in our lives than God. One of the biggest uh, struggles that I, I, I have recently is, and I shared this with my life group this past, this past uh, week, is just the, the role between being a father and a pastor, or you know, what, what my vocation is versus what my role in the family is. I think one of the things that I, I realized that I worship is I worship my significance in those roles. I, I worship what people think of me in those roles. And so I, I started to, when, after Noah was born, um, I started to feel this tension that every single time I'd be at home taking care of the baby, I'd be like, oh man, I'm not spending enough time out there with people investing and doing the work that I feel like I need to be doing. And then every time I went out to uh, go meet with people and do pastoral stuff or work on stuff, then I would feel this tension of like, man, I'm not at home enough to take care of the child. And it, and it came to, and I was sharing this with my life group, and they were kind of disgusted by this photo. But uh, I want to show it to you because this is dad life, and all of you all better be ready for it. All y'all who are dads, if, dads, you know what I mean. And then uh, those of you who are not dads yet, you will find out what I mean when you get there. So, yes, this is a cute photo. This is probably like 10% of the time, okay? Like, <laughs> when, when you're parent friends send you photos of cute baby pictures, that is like, okay, not, I don't even know if it's 10%, like 5%, maybe 1% of the time of what they look like, okay? So you're like, you know, when they're being nice, you're like, oh, let's take a photo as soon as possible because they're not going to be like this for very much longer. So I have a really rough relationship with uh, Noah pooping. And I, I had a really hard, because every single time when I'm at home and I'm spending time, and, and like there's times where I'm trying to work on a sermon or I'm trying to work on stuff, and he poops. And it's like the most like irritating thing. Why? Because I have to get up from what I'm doing, change him, clean his diaper, and then rock him back to sleep or whatever. And it gets in the way of the things that I'm trying to do. And it got so bad, I, I realized I was staying up late at night. I, was, uh, I, was conf I confessed to my life group. I was, like, buying stuff on Amazon that I shouldn't be buying. You know, like, different things that I was, like, what is this tension in my heart that I'm trying to fill something that I feel anxious about? And uh, just so uh, you know, like, this is what poop looks like. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, go back. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a better photo, right? That's a better photo. <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time, but it happens often enough, right? That's called a blowout. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, you don't, yeah, that's the part you don't see about the baby when he's back there. You're like, you're like, oh, yeah, but it's, no, that's not how. <laughs> so there's that one time where I was sitting and, and I was feeding him and I just hear the, you know, and I'm like, oh, man. And I was trying to work on stuff, so I changed his diaper, I, and I put a new diaper on, and I'm like trying to feed him again. And then, like, 10 minutes later, I hear, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, it's the second time. And then after the second time, I change his diaper again. I message her, oh, my God, he pooped two times. And, like, he's so, such a poopy baby. And we, you know, we say he's just a poop machine. And we just call him Poop Machine as for short, like his name. <laughs> and then 
again, I change a second diaper, and about 15 minutes later, I finish, almost finished feeding him, and I, I hear it again. And by that third time, I don't, I, I don't know what got over me, but I, I went down to, to the changing pad to change his diaper, and tears started rolling down my eyes. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on? And I was like, when I, not like, it wasn't like a lot of tears, but it was just like one little, like, drop of thing. And I, I, I was like, what is going on? And I had to do some introspection. And when I, when I sat down, I thought about, like, why is this poop so, <laughs> such a big deal for me, you know? It's just poop. And I started to realize, like, every moment I hear, <laughs> that to me was another inconvenience. It was another roadblock in my identity as someone who's trying to get his work done. And I realized I cared so much about getting the things I needed to get done that even when my own child is here just doing his natural thing, he's just doing his thing, that it would cause me to get frustrated, angry, emotional, and just downright mad for something that is so natural. And I realized, like, there is something so wrong in my heart, that there's such a big idol in my heart, uh, an idol of performance, an idol of approval that I'm longing for that causes me to not be able to properly love my child, to not properly do the things that I ought to do as a pastor. And I, and I, and I realized for many of us, like, we struggle so much with idolatry that we don't even realize it until we're in that moment that poop hits the fan, literally. But just think about it. Those of you who are in working context when something at work doesn't go right and when you're stressed for time and you feel like all these things are pulling at you and those of you who are you know married you have kids your marriages are pulling at you your kids are calling for your attention church is telling you to invest in church you know you have friendships you have your boss telling you to overtime and you're like what am I supposed to do and you can't help but feeling anxious, stressed. You can't help but feeling like, what am I supposed to do? And then as soon as someone demands something else, then what do you do? You get triggered. And if it's church and you get burned out, and then what happens when it's church? You're like, oh, church sucks. I hate God. Why is God demanding so much of me? Why are my leaders doing all these kind of things? And it's not just church. It's work. It's all the other contexts. And what do we do? We, all these other things come out of our lives. We don't realize that our, our medication, oftentimes, what, we, what do we try to do? We're like, okay, Lord, just forgive me. Help me just to do better next time. Lord, I'm sorry for getting angry. Okay, let me just help do better next time. Oh, let me try to invest more. And you just go, go through the cycle of burnout over and over again. When we never address the core idol, which is approval, you care so much more about what people think of you than you care of what God thinks of you. No wonder you can't say no to anyone. Students, don't think you're exempted. How many of us, we struggle when exam season comes around? It's coming soon, right? This week, next week, two weeks from now, three weeks from now? How many of us, when exams come around, we start to get a little shaky? Oh, my gosh. And then our schedule, oh, my. Then that, that's when you pull out your calendar. That's when you schedule everything you know, to the T, to the minute. And you're like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do, you, you cancel all of your plans. You cancel all of your life group stuff. You cancel all of your friend hangouts. All you do, you study, that's it. And then when you study, how's your quality of study time? <laughs> Amen. And you get frustrated. Why? Because your quality of study time is not that great. And you're like, Lord, I'm sorry. Please help me to be a good student. This is my calling. I want to be a good student. Lord, help me to do well on this exam. You send out this prayer to life group. Please pray for me. But you haven't addressed the idol of control. Because for you, the most important thing in life is for you to be in control. For you to have the grades that you need in order to get the internship that you want, in order to have the career that you want, in order to have the life that your parents wanted for you. And if you're out of control, then that is the end of the world. But God is not king of your life. It's not just a list of do's and we, we minimize it. Yes, it is true. When you're doing wrong things or when you're not loving people, that is wrong. But when you minimize it just to one act or a set of things or behaviors, you're missing the greater point of the idol that's in your heart because you're suppressing the truth. 
And no wonder none of us, we change. Because we've never really submitted ourselves to God. What is it for you that's most important in your life? What is it that you give the most glory to? What is it that runs your life? That when you don't have it, you get discouraged and desperate. And when you have it, you find the greatest satisfaction, but only temporarily. Identify that thing, because that is the facade of idolatry that you must uncover. Paul talks about not only the facade of idolatry, but also the fruit of idolatry. Let's continue on and read verses 24 to 27. It says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshiped and served the cre- creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Many of us, we don't want to... I mean, and these are some hard passages for myself and Pastor to preach. And we just want to stay faithful to what the Bible is talking about. We want to see the God's word and talk about what God's word is talking about, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. And so we look here. Uh, previously, we read before in verse 21, Paul mentions there are two things that happen when people give into idolatry. The two things are, one, is that their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so in these verses, then Paul then starts to talk about what happens to our hearts And what happens to our thinking or our minds? So what happens to our heart and our idolatry? It's the heart's desires. The heart, it focuses on desire. This is the fruit. Desire of what? Desire of the body. Desire for food, for, for sex, for comfort. And Paul is reminding us that our heart's desires have to be fulfilled by something. What we are doing is we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And he's reminding us of that in verse 25. He's saying we're exchanging now natural relations for unnatural relations. So he's talking about your desires, your bodily desires. So what you desire, it has to fulfill you or satisfy you in some way, shape, or form. And if you try to satisfy yourself with something that wasn't designed to satisfy you, what's going to happen? You're not going to be satisfied. And so you're going to be looking for something else. And when you look for something else and that doesn't satisfy you, what's going to happen? You end up looking for something else. What happens when you buy something on Taobao or HKTV Mall or Amazon and you're like, oh, you're really excited for that package to come? What happens when you get it? You're satisfied for a second. And then once you have it, then you're like, oh, I need more. I need something else. Because why? That package was not desired to satisfy you. The deepest longings and desires of your heart. In the same way, unnatural relations were not desired, designed to satisfy you. Dallas Willard in his book, Life Without Lack, he says this, and he kind of explains it in a much uh, more eloquent way. He says this, desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Have you thought about that? You, if you were created by God, we talked about the creator. Creator, the God is the greatest thing in the universe. If we were created by him, then we were created for him. But if we were created for him, if we're trying to satisfy ourselves with other things that are not him, then what's going to happen is we're going to be left feeling unsatisfied. And those things are going to eat away at the very thing that we were designed for. So what happens to those desires? Those desires of the heart, its desires become shameful lusts. Those desires became shameful lusts. In verse 26, it talks about how they exchange, again, natural relations for unnatural ones. Why is it shameful? Why is it, why is it degrading? Why, is it, why does it have to be this way? Again, don't, don't raise your hand. But how many of us, we know that sex 
will never ever, sex in and of itself will never satisfy you. I don't know how many of you have previous experiences or maybe you are addicted to pornography or other things. How many of us, we know that sex in itself, the act, will never fully satisfy you. Some of you have been through those relationships. Some of you have been through those encounters. Some of you have been watching those videos and you realize at the, at the end you feel good for a moment, but then afterward you feel what? You feel empty. You feel horrible. You've tried to take something that is unnatural and use it to satisfy your natural desires. And what are those natural desires? It was how God created sex to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Genesis 2, verse 25, and then chapter 3, verse 7. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They weren't ashamed. They were created. So when it's in the context of how God created, then you don't experience shame. But then we continue on in chapter 3, verse 7. This is after they had sinned, taken the apple and eaten of it. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What are they doing? They're trying to what? Now cover up. Earlier we talked about covering up, suppressing the truth, stifling the truth, hiding the truth. When you cover up, you, you feel ashamed. Why? Because you have taken something that is natural, and try to satisfy it with something that is unnatural. And anytime you do that, in any context, doesn't matter if it's sex, doesn't matter if it's food, doesn't matter if it's anything that your body desires, love, approval, affirmation, you take anything that is natural and you try to apply something unnatural to it, you will feel empty and you'll be left ashamed. You'll left to be hiding and covering up. But the greatest consequence is not just the shame. The greatest consequence of the heart of idolatry is that it separates us from God. It separates us from God. And we see, again, in Genesis, that original after Adam and Eve, they covered themselves. God was pursuing them. He was saying, where are you? And they hid. And then God asked, why did you hide? In Genesis 3, verse 10, it says, and Adam says, in response to God, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Shame separates us from God. And idolatry leads to shame because why? We're exchanging natural things for the unnatural. And the question is, why does God allow this to happen? I mean, practically, one aspect is that he just wants us to be able to make our own decisions. He gives us the capacity, the faculty to reason, to think, to choose. But I think the greater reason is because God ultimately wants us to feel empty so that we will ultimately return to him. Amen. God wants us to be with him so much that he will allow us to stray for him for a moment so that we will ultimately realize that will never satisfy us until we come back to God. Augustine of Hippo, in one of his confessions, he said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Until our heart finds full rest in God, we will never be satisfied. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that every desire we look for, we will realize there's a certain restlessness in our lives. There's something that we're always trying to hide or cover up, a certain idolatry that keeps leading us toward these other, thi other things. And it's only when we find that we could be fully ourselves in God without shame will we be fully satisfied. It's not only the heart's desires that's the fruit, but it's also the mind's depravity. Let's continue on in verses 28 to 31. And it says, and they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, uh, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What happens to the mind in idolatry? Just like we looked at what happens to the heart in idolatry. The mind in idolatry, we see this in verse 28. It does not do what ought to be done. It, or it does what not ought to be done. 
The mind, the mind is our, our center of decision-making. It's our, it's our logic. It's our, it's our choosing. It's our judgment. It's how we make determinations. But how many of us, we know that we are not fully in control of our decisions? How many of us, we know that when we choose to do something, we end up finding ourselves doing something totally different? How many of us, we clicked on a YouTube video because we were trying to watch, you know, someone who's going to teach us something that our professor didn't teach us in class? Right? And then like two, three hours later, you're watching something totally, completely different. Like for me, it's, uh, I end up straying to like NBA games or like tennis, you know, because I'm into tennis. And then all of it, like randomly, I'll end up ending on, um, this is so, so random, but uh, videos on YouTube about the largest airplanes landing on the shortest runways. Like I don't even know, and I'm just like, I'm like, how did I get here, right? Like, I set out, I, like, sometimes this happens, this is really bad, but this sometimes, like, when pastors, we're looking for sermon videos, we start on, like, looking for sermon videos, and we end up on airplanes, right? Like, I'm like how, how did that happen? I don't know if pastors said that happens to you, but sometimes that happens to me, right? We set out to do something, but we find ourselves doing something completely different. So in some way, we think, oh, yeah, I have the capacity to choose. I have free will. I have the independent decision-making. But on the other hand, we are not fully in control of our decision-making. Our minds are depraved. We do what ought not to be done. And what is it that we ought not to be doing? It's not only random stuff like airplanes, right? But it's also opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul gives this whole list, and I'm not going to read it over because it was hard to read. But it's just a mouthful of all this evil negativity. And many of us are like, yeah, uh, I kind of see that, but I'm not like that. Well, let me read us Galatians 5, verse 19 to 23, and you'll see some of the parallels. This is what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is also Paul writing to the church in Galatia. It says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Amen. I want to ask you, how many of us, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, you might feel like, yeah, the first part, yeah, I'm not, you know, dissensions. I don't even know what dissensions are. Sorcery, I'm not sorcerers. But Paul contrasts these two lists intentionally. How many of you, you experience the fruit of the Spirit all the time? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when you do not experience those things, what are you experiencing? The lack of those things, which ends up being the opposite. How many of you, again, don't raise your hand. How many of you, you vowed never to be like, your parents because of some of the negative things that you observe when you're growing up. You're like, oh, I'm never going to be like my mom or I'm never going to be like my dad. But now as you're growing older, you're like, oh, shoot. I'm wearing the same clothes my dad used to wear. <laughs> I have some of the same habits my mom used to have. I'm talking the same way that my dad used to talk to me. And some of those things are not very great. Some of those things end up coming out in anger and frustration and jealousy and comparison. In, in outbursts, some of us, we have anger issues and we're like, where did this come from? And it reminds you of your parents and the way that they got angry when you were growing up. And even though you vowed to yourself, you oh, I'm never going to do that. What do you end up finding? You find out that you're doing the very same thing. And we can't help it. Even though we thought we chose not to do it, we end up finding that's what we end up doing. When I am most tied down to my idols, when I am least able to clearly think and make decisions that I want to make. I shared this, uh, some of you who've been here for a while, I shared before how there's a period of time where I wanted to run away from Hong Kong. I wanted to get on airplanes. So I have something on airplanes. I have an issue. Right? <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that was not the only time. There, were, there was a time when uh, even when I was back in Ann Arbor, I was serving as a leader. 
I was leading life group. I was on the executive team, uh, you know, coordinator. And here I am preaching about love and grace and God's faithfulness and all this kind of stuff. There's a period of time where I just did some, I had some weird thoughts that I totally didn't even know where they came from. But it was just this weird thought of, it was because I was going through a really rough time and I was giving into some of those idols of approval and some of those idols of performance and control again. And I just had this weird thought of, I wasn't just going to run away cause, and go to the airplane because I had nowhere else to go back then because that was my home. But um, it was in that moment I was like, what if I just pack up all my stuff and just drive somewhere completely different and then get lost so that no one knows where I am, turn off my mo mobile phone, erase all my social media accounts, and then install security cameras all over my apartment and in the church and everywhere that I normally go to because I want to know if anyone is going to miss me or if anyone is going to wonder where I went. And I was like, why am I thinking of these things? Why is my mind going there? And I'm like, here I am, a leader, thinking some of these thoughts. And I don't know how many of us, you, you might not think of security cameras and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like tech guy, so I like that kind of stuff. But you might be thinking of other thoughts. And I'm wondering if as we realize that our thoughts have gone so far off the cliff because we never realize or dealt with the idols that are in our hearts. That is the fruit of idolatry. You wonder why is it that our minds are constantly going to there? Because why? We're placing our worth, our significance. We're worshiping something that is created rather than the creator. We as limited human beings, we're trying to be big in some way when really we ought to be giving God the greatest glory more than anything else. Cornelius Plantiga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he says this. He says, we blunt our own conscience, darken our own judgment by self-interest, and rebuke in others the very vices for which we are famous. Each of us carries around a deep and calm source of delusion which undermines the whole principle of good. Sin hurts other people and grieves God, but it also corrodes us. Sin is a form of self-abuse. And the way that it's a, self of, of, a form of self-abuse is because why? It's because we exalted ourselves to a place that we could not have capacity to hold. We made ourselves bigger than we ought to be. And we could not stand the pressure of being the creator when God is the rightful creator and we are only the creation. But when we put ourselves in the rightful place and when we humble ourselves and say, God, we no longer want to suppress the truth, but we want to honor you as Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, Amen. then everything else in creation, everything else in our lives will then fall into place. What are the fruits that you're bearing in your life? What are the desires that you're holding on to that you don't want to give up, that you're constantly trying to satisfy yourself? What are the thoughts that you're thinking and where are those going and where are they coming from? Do you realize what idols are fueling those kind of thoughts? And, and this is the hard part about preaching this passage. And it's not something that we like to talk about because the, the, the consequences and the brokenness of sin is something that is the problem. And we have to be aware of the problem if we are to understand the gospel of grace. God's wrath has to be clear in our lives for, under, for us to understand how amazing Jesus Christ is. And if we don't understand this, if we don't comprehend this, then we're not going to be able to receive the, the fruit, the good gift, the fruit of the Spirit that Jesus has for us. And some of us, we might just be discouraged and be like, oh man, what a melancholy, sad, depressing message. We're messed up. Yes, that's, if you take away one thing, you're messed up. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm messed up. So the question is, if I'm so messed up, then where's the hope, right? Where's the hope? If I give my life to all these idols, then what can possibly break me free from idolatry? And I, of course, the good news is that only God and only Jesus Christ is the only one who could break such kind of idolatry. I want to read us for a verse and just close out with this verse from Matthew 26, verses 62 to 66. This is when Jesus is on trial for uh, blasphemy. 
He's about to be crucified. He's in front of all the high priests and all the rulers and the teachers of the law. And he's getting interrogated by the high priest. And this is what it says. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. So why is this passage relevant to our idolatry? Jesus was on trial for idolatry. Jesus was on trial for blasphemy. Jesus was on trial because the teachers of the law thought that he was a man trying to elevate and exalt himself to the place of God. But if there is anyone in all of creation who is worthy to be God, it is Jesus Christ. But yet he willingly went and suffered. He willingly put himself under the punishment of an idolater, of a blasphemer. Why? So that the consequences and the fruit of idolatry would no longer be upon us. So that we could be set free from idolatry. Why? Because he was the one who, if if there's anyone, he should be least tried for idolatry and blasphemy. Because he was God. And he was the only one who was God. But he was the only one who was killed and crucified for idolatry. Which is the very thing that we should have been crucified for. We should have died. We should be the recipients of God's wrath upon all who are unrighteous and wicked. But that is God's grace. That is God's grace for us. That by dying and being in our place, that he sets us now free from idolatry. He says, look at me. Look at me. I actually am God. I'm greater than anything else in your life. And I want you to put your hope, your whole life, your whole significance in me and no one else. That is the good news of the gospel. And that's why the one thing for us to remember is that the greatest scandal as a limited creature is trying to replace the limitless creator. I want to give us just a couple next steps for this morning. Some practical things for us to take away and and try to live out in our lives. The first thing is just identify and repent of your idolatry. Identify and repent of your idolatry. Again, it's not a moralistic set of things to do or not to do. It's not just a a one-time sinner. Some of us, we're like, oh, I, I said my sinner's prayer. I receive Jesus into my heart. It's not like that. Idolatry is a, is, is a cancer in our hearts. It's a cancer in our hearts that unless we reorient our whole lives around God, it will always remain present in us. That means you can't just say one prayer and like, oh yeah, everything's good now. Yes, you are fully forgiven. You don't have to do or earn more to uh, receive God's love. But it's a daily discipline. It's a daily lifestyle of following and saying, God, you're my everything. And every single day we need to repent of idolatry. Every single day. Identify and repent of our idolatry. If you don't know what it means to repent, if you don't know what it looks like to identify, I want to encourage you, talk to someone that you see they're walking with God and they know how to identify some of those things. Talk to your LCG. Talk to your life group leaders. Discuss it with other brothers and sisters because oftentimes we are the ones who can't see ourselves the clearest. Sometimes other people have to help us to see what the idolatry in our hearts are. So that's number one. Identify, repent of idolatry. Second one, impose limits on yourself. Some of us, we don't have a good sense of what our limitations are. And we constantly try to be God. And for those of you who are very self-sufficient, like you're constantly doing more things, you might need to look at your life, your schedule, your priorities, and speak hard truth to yourself or have someone else speak hard truth to yourself and say, you cannot do everything that you're trying to do right now in a way that honors God. You just cannot. Some of us were like, but I want to, but they're all, of course, you can always argue why everything is important. But until you realize you're limited, you will never be humbling yourself before God who is limitless. Because you're going to be, you're trying to be limitless. 
So impose limits on you. Pull out your schedule. Pull out your calendar. Write down how, how do you use your time? What are your priorities? And start to realize, hey, maybe I can't do all the things that I want to do or that fuel my sense of significance or importance. Lastly, not only identifying, repenting, or idolatry, imposing limits on yourself, but number three is idolize God each day. I know sometimes in the church we think idol is, is a really bad word. It is if you use it for anything outside of God. But to idolize something is to esteem, to great, give the greatest sense of importance to something. And if that is God, then it is the greatest thing that you can do. If your whole life is centered around God, you wake up in the morning, you're like, Lord, how can I magnify you today? You take a break for lunch. Lord, how have I magnified you today? How can I magnify you in my life today? How can you be the most important thing? Ask yourself that question. How can I idolize you? How can I magnify you in every area of my life? And go to bed thinking about, Lord, how have I magnified you in my life today? Because you are the greatest thing. There's nothing else greater than you. Can we just stand? We'll close out together. Can we just spend some time in prayer for ourselves and for our own hearts? These are one of those faith prayers I want to encourage us with. Because there are often times where we might hear a message like this. We might hear things where we're like, oh yeah, like, God, that's true. I mean, I give in to these idols, but I just, I just it's, not, it's not something I'm convicted by. It's not something I'm convinced by. And so at those times, that's when we got to just pray for our hearts. That's when we got to be like that father who had a paralyzed kid. And Jesus says, do you believe? And the father says, I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. We got to pray that prayer. Lord, help me to overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. I do believe you're a creator. I do believe that you're the most important thing. Help me to overcome the times and the moments where I don't believe. Or you pray the prayer of the psalmist, Psalm 73, when he says, My flesh and my heart might fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, I might fail. I'm, I'm going to be limited. I'm small, but Lord, you will never fail me. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Just to begin to pray some of those prayers and pray and just ask God to change our hearts, to free ourselves from idolatry, to free ourselves from thinking so much bigger of ourselves than we actually are. And let's respond to him. Let's confess to him. Let's come to him in repentance. Let's respond before we end this morning. Come on, let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.